Now, did you tell them what the title of the talk is today? Have they heard this? No, they haven't. Okay, well, I don't know if you've seen it anywhere, but the title of the talk today is They Don't Vote in Montevideo. And the subtitle is Why All Foreign Policy is Local. The topic of this lecture is a fundamental principle of American foreign policy and American politics. And I'll make it very easy for you because I see that some of you have notebooks out and you want to get the basic theme of the lecture. The theme of the lecture is that American foreign policy is mostly about American domestic politics. That's supposed to be somewhat provocative and maybe even paradoxical, but the fact of the matter is that when American presidents, and since the topic of my lecture series is presidents, when American presidents think about foreign policy, they think at least as much about American domestic politics as they do about the foreign side of foreign policy. And there's a basic reason for this, and the reason is that they don't vote in Montevideo. That is, they don't vote for the American president in foreign countries. You might think that foreign policy is about foreign countries and foreign people. Yes, it is. But it's only partly about that. It's also about winning elections. And when candidates run for president, they know perfectly well that they can have brilliant ideas regarding how the country should be run, but the brilliant ideas get nowhere unless they get elected. And presidents who are already in office understand that they might have brilliant initiatives in foreign policy, but the brilliant initiatives will unravel unless they get re-elected. Okay, that's the basic theme. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Since this a number of you are students, and if you were in the classroom this afternoon, you would be subject to questions by Professor Whitney. So, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think are the principal issues in the election campaign this year, either so far or between now and November? What issues are the candidates debating? What are they talking about? Now, if you don't raise your hand, I'll have to just pick on somebody and say, there you go. Yes, please. Okay, the war in Iraq. This is an issue. Do you think that this is the most important issue? Well, before we say the most important or not, what, are, what other issues are the candidates debating? Yes? Uh, immigration. immigration. Okay, immigration is a controversial issue. And this is one that the candidates have to address. So we've got the war in Iraq, we've got immigration. Other issues? Did you watch the Democratic debates a uh, week before last? Yes? Healthcare, okay? In fact, the Democrats are making a big deal of this. And in those debates, the ones that were held before the Texas primary, I live in Texas, so I was very aware of the debates before the Texas primary. Senators Obama and Clinton spent collectively a couple of hours debating the differences between their health care reform packages, with one arguing that these details are essential and the other these details. So the war in Iraq, immigration, health care reform. What else? Who else? Yes. The economy, okay? And especially in a state like Michigan, which is suffering job losses. 
Okay? The economy is a big deal. Now, let's, those are four pretty good issues. We might be able to add a couple more, but among those four, let me ask you, how many of you, how many of you have voted in presidential elections before? Okay. How many of you expect to vote in this presidential election? Very good. When you go to the polls, are you going to be most influenced by the war in Iraq, immigration, health care reform, or the economy, or something else? What do you think? I mean, when you, you don't have to tell me who you're going to vote for, but what's going to be on your mind when you go, when you think about who you're going to vote for and when you decide to cast your vote? Who wants to volunteer? Okay. I'm just going to have to pick on somebody since you already spoke. You. What are you going to think? Yes. Okay. There you go. Health care is important to everybody, but if you're going into that field, it's particularly important for you. Who else? Who has... Who's already thinking about priorities? You, sir. Uh, go along the lines of the economy. Okay, the economy. If the economy goes sour, then nearly everything else is at risk. If the economy does well, the nation prospers. If the economy does poorly, how many of you expect to be out looking for full-time sort of jobs within the next five years? Okay. The economy is a big deal for you, whether you realize it right now or not. Because if you get out of college and the economy is doing well, then there will be jobs. If the economy is tanking, there won't be jobs, and you'll have to figure out what to do. And it makes all the difference in the world as to what the state of the economy is. My father, who is now almost 93 years old, graduated from college in the middle of the Great Depression. And it took him years to figure out what he could do for a job, what kind of work he could have. And you might think that that's ancient history, and it's no particular history to you, but it's history to me because if the economy had been doing well, if the economy had been doing well when my father graduated from college, I would be in comfortable retirement now. You might wonder, how does that happen? Well, because my father couldn't find a job when he got out of college, he didn't get married. Especially in more traditional times in those days, you didn't get married and start a family until you had prospects. And when he eventually went to my, my grandfather, who would be his father-in-law, and asked permission to marry his daughter, my grandfather, my mother's father, inquired very closely, so what are your economic prospects? How are you going to be able to take care of my daughter? And if he had asked in 1935, he wouldn't have been able to give a very convincing answer. So he put off getting married until... 1941. And then do you know what happened in December 1941? Pearl Harbor. The United States entered World War II. So my father didn't get married. He went off to war. He joined the army and went off to war. He didn't get married until 1948, which is why I was born in 1953 rather than in 1943, which is why I got another 10 years before I get to retire. Anyway, this all does have Consequences. Healthcare reform, the economy, anybody else? 
want to volunteer what you're going to be thinking about. Don't want to make eye contact with me, do you? What, what do you think about? What issues are important to you? Okay, the economy. All right, now I will ask, you don't have to say anything. I'll ask you to raise your hands. How many of you would list the economy as the most important issue facing the voters and the candidates in the election this year? Okay, how many of you would say immigration? How many of you would say health care reform? How many of you would say the war in Iraq? Okay, eh, that's probably a fair representation, I'm going to guess, of the nation as a whole. It's interesting that the war in Iraq is probably considered to be less important now than it was when this election cycle began about a year ago. At that time, the war in Iraq seemed to be the most important issue, and the economy was doing better than it is now, and so the economy wasn't such a big deal. But if the economy, in fact, does play the principal role in the election of 2008, that will be in line with historical precedent. In fact, I will tell you right now that presidential elections almost never turn on foreign affairs. It is the exceedingly rare presidential campaign in which voters, when they go into that booth, say, into that booth, say, all right, I'm voting for this person because of his position on some foreign policy event or circumstance. No. In fact, much more commonly, they choose, just as you did, the economy. The economy is much more important than foreign policy. And in fact, you could, if I wanted to, I could count probably on this hand and maybe a couple more fingers, presidential candidates who were experienced and educated in foreign affairs before they became president. Overwhelmingly, presidents have been trained in domestic affairs. Woodrow Wilson was elected in 1912. Woodrow Wilson is listed, is generally considered to be one of the near great presidents. Woodrow Wilson was one of two presidents who led the United States into a world war. And for that reason, Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson is probably, eh, arguably, one of the two most important American leaders on the subject of international affairs. Wilson is one, and Franklin Roosevelt is the other. Woodrow Wilson was elected president in 1912 with no concern whatsoever paid to his preparation in foreign affairs. And Woodrow Wilson himself, just before his inauguration in March of 1913, told a friend, it would be the irony of fate if foreign affairs played a large role in my administration. And indeed, it was the irony of fate because a couple of years later, World War I broke out and foreign affairs played the major role in his administration. Okay, so having laid that out, that basic groundwork, the fact that foreign affairs represents a small part of what Americans think about when they vote for president, and that if you want to understand American foreign policy, you need to understand American domestic politics. With that background, I'm going to tell you a story of three presidents and three wars. And I might get to a fourth president and a fourth war if I don't run out of time. The three presidents, well, the first of the three presidents was Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was president from 1901 until the beginning of 1909. 
But he became president the first time not by election, but by the death, by assassination, of William McKinley. Theodore Roosevelt was vice president at the time. And Theodore Roosevelt was vice president because he helped start a war. Theodore Roosevelt was one of a small group of individuals who agitated for war against Spain in 1897 and 1898. The war against Spain, the war between the United States and Spain, was triggered by a revolution in Cuba, which at that time was a colony of Spain. And Theodore Roosevelt and a group of like-thinking individuals in Washington and New York thought that the revolution in Cuba afforded the United States the opportunity and the obligation to go to the assistance of the Cubans. The Cubans were trying to achieve independence from Spain. And Roosevelt thought that the United States should assist the Cubans in gaining their independence from Spain. This was in keeping with a long tradition of American support for nationalist revolutions in other countries. The United States itself had been born of a nationalist revolution against the British Empire. So the United States ought to support a Cuban revolution against the Spanish Empire. So this was, call it the altruistic part of Roosevelt's thinking on the subject of Spain and Cuba. Then there was what I could call the self-interested part of Roosevelt's thinking. For the United States to intervene in Cuba against Spain would help the Cuban people, but it would also help the United States. Because the United States would remove Spain, which was a declining power, but still an important power, from its position right next door to the United States. It is a fundamental principle of international affairs that you don't want strong powers near your border. You want to be surrounded by weak countries, not by strong countries. The weaker your neighbors, the better. Because then your neighbors can't beat up on you. They can't threaten you. If you're weak, if they're weak, you can threaten them, but not vice versa. The other thing was, and this was the part of the agenda that Theodore Roosevelt did not share broadly with the people to whom he made this argument for war. Spain had another colony besides Cuba. It had several colonies, but another Spanish colony besides Cuba was the Philippines. Now, the Philippines bears no relationship to Cuba. The Philippines is way on the other side of the globe. But the Philippines was a Spanish colony, and it was strategically located with respect to China. Roosevelt and his intellectual allies were thinking in terms of a larger role for the United States in East Asia. And to seize naval bases in the Philippines would give the United States a leg up. Now, since some of you are writing things down, write this down as another fundamental principle of American foreign policy. The successful foreign policies of the United States combine two aspects, altruism and self-interest. American foreign policy, the ones that have worked, 
have been good for other people and good for the United States. They have to be good for other people because Americans want the world to think well of us. We like to think that we're doing good things for the world. We're not simply in it for us. And this is an important and very admirable strain in American thinking. But, as Henry Kissinger once said, diplomacy is not to be confused with philanthropy. So it can't be entirely for other people's good. There has to be something in it for us. Let me ask you, the United States has 160,000 troops in Iraq today. If what I said just, said just now is true, that American foreign policies combine altruism and self-interest, what's the altruistic part of having all of those soldiers in Iraq? How does it serve somebody else's good? Yes? Okay, frees the people of Iraq from Saddam Hussein's tyranny and promotes, we hope, democracy in Iraq. So this is a good thing for the Iraqi people. And I don't deny it for a minute. Okay, that's the altruistic part. What's the self-interested part? What's in it for us? Yes? Oil. Oil, okay? It's not a coincidence that those American troops are in Iraq and not in Sudan or not in Sri Lanka, or not in any number of other places that suffer similar kinds of misgovernment, but don't have oil. So, if you look at nearly any important American foreign policy for the last 200 years, you don't have to look very deeply to find both of these aspects, the altruism and the self-interest. Okay, so Roosevelt says we've got to declare war on Spain. It took a while for Roosevelt to convince William McKinley, who was the president at the time. William McKinley was a reluctant warrior. He didn't want to lead the United States into war. He had served in the army during the Civil War. He said, I have seen war. I have seen the bodies stacked like cordwood. And I don't want to go into another war unless we have to. But Roosevelt kept working on McKinley. Roosevelt was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And he kept working on McKinley. In fact, McKinley had a Navy doctor. Every president has his official physician. And McKinley's physician was, I'm sorry, he's Army, not Navy. He was a colonel named Leonard Wood, who was a good friend of Roosevelt. And every couple of days, Leonard Wood would go up to the White House to check in on his patient, William McKinley. And McKinley would see him coming, and as Wood came up, McKinley would jokingly say, well, Leonard, have you and Theodore declared war yet? And Leonard Wood would say, without breaking a smile, he'd say, no, Mr. President, we haven't, but we think you should. And Theodore Roosevelt was one of the people behind sending an American battleship, the USS Maine, to the harbor in Havana, where it mysteriously blew up causing a whole lot of Americans to think that the Spanish must have been behind it, creating a groundswell support for war. The U.S. Congress declared war. The United States went to war against Spain. And the first thing it did upon going to war against Spain over the affairs of Cuba 
was to seize the Philippines. This was astonishing to most Americans. They thought the war was all about Cuba. And they woke up to read in the newspapers, U.S. fleet conquers the Philippines. Most of them had to look on their map to find out where the Philippines was. Well, they found them, and the United States, as a result of this war, found itself in control of the Philippines. And Theodore Roosevelt, deciding to put his money where his mouth was, Theodore Roosevelt had long praised the virtues of warriors and said that the glories of peace pale beside the glories of war. Theodore Roosevelt was too young to have fought in the Civil War, but now he had a chance to win glory in his own war. So he immediately resigned his position in Washington to go fight. Now, this sort of, this sort of personal commitment is unheard of in American government today. It would be like the, the number two person at the Pentagon after having helped push the United States into war. I don't know if you remember who it was, but Roosevelt's counterpart was a guy named Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And he held the job that Theodore Roosevelt had held 100 years before. If Paul Wolfowitz had said, okay, I'm resigning as the number two person in the Pentagon, and I'm going to go join the infantry in Iraq, you can imagine what a phenomenon that would have been. Well, Theodore Roosevelt was very much the same way. Roosevelt went off to Cuba and covered himself in glory. And he came home, and he was immediately elected governor of New York, a position that looks like might be open here pretty soon. Uh, we can get back to that if you want to. Um, and then he created such a furor in New York. He was nominated by the boss of New York, Tom Platt, the Republican leader, who thought, ah, this is the kind of guy we need. Somebody that we can put in office and will take orders from me and the Republican regulars. So they engineered Roosevelt's nomination, and Roosevelt promptly got elected and demonstrated that he, in fact, was the governor of New York and not Tom Platt. And Tom Platt became so infuriated with Theodore Roosevelt that he began to tear what little hair he had left. And he said, what am I going to do with this guy? How am I going to be rid of this rambunctious governor? So he had a brilliant idea. He was going to arrange for Roosevelt's nomination as vice president. Now, you might think that this was a step up for Roosevelt, and so he would be happy to take the nomination. But in 1900... The vice presidency was where political careers went to die. Most people couldn't name the vice president of the United States then. The vice president was not the heir apparent to the presidency. No, the vice presidency was a dead-end job. It was a reward for services rendered in the past. But if you became vice president, then your political hopes pretty well were on the wane. When Theodore Roosevelt was elected, in fact, the ticket won in 1900, he was elected vice president. He became so bored with his job that he seriously toyed with the idea of going to law school while he was vice president. He had attended law school very briefly out of college, but he dropped out to do something else. And now that he was vice president, time was hanging heavy on his hands. And he thought, well, I'll at least complete my law degree and get something out of my time as vice president before he had a chance to re-enroll at Columbia Law School. William McKinley was assassinated and Theodore Roosevelt became president. Well, about this time, the true cost of the war in Cuba and in the Philippines was becoming known. 
The war between the United States and Spain had ended a mere four months, four months after it began. And it was described, somewhat ironically, as a splendid little war by John Hay, one of Roosevelt's friends. And it seemed so at the time. The United States had won. Cuba gained its independence. And Spain was ejected from the Western Hemisphere and from the Philippines. And so, from that narrow standpoint, it seemed like a great idea. But things got more complicated because at the end of the war, the United States annexed the Philippines. The United States made sure that Cuba got its independence, but not the Filipinos. Now, the Filipinos, unbeknownst to most Americans, had already started a revolution of their own for their own independence against Spain. The United States came in and squashed that revolution, and the Filipinos became independent of Spain, but not of the United States. And so very shortly, a revolution against the United States broke out. And this is where it starts to sound eerily familiar. American troops were not greeted as liberators by the Filipinos, but as occupiers, as oppressors. And an insurgency broke out against American forces in the Philippines. And American forces began resorting to harsh tactics against the insurgents, including a form of harsh interrogation that was then called waterboarding. No, excuse me, I'm confused. It wasn't called waterboarding, it was called the water cure, but it was essentially the same thing. It was, the delicate term these days is simulated drowning. What you basically do is pour water down a person's throat and into the, the lungs and everything else. And so the person really does feel like he is drowning. And then you stop the process when they tell you what you want to hear. And this aspect, if there's no other name for it but torture, and this aspect of torture became very controversial in the United States. Congress held hearings. And there were reprimands. Commanders in the field were relieved. And Americans became very disillusioned about this undertaking that they had been led into by Theodore Roosevelt. And very quickly they turned against the war, the war that they had supported so enthusiastically just a short while before. And people like Theodore Roosevelt, who had thought that he had the United States behind him as he helped push the United States into war, was forced to acknowledge that this war had been a bad idea. As he explained, the United States controlled the Philippines, sort of, but in fact the Philippines became what Roosevelt called America's Achilles heel, its weak spot in its security perimeter. And in fact, it remained America's weak spot for the next 40 years until December 7, 1941, because it was the American position in the Philippines that prompted the Japanese attack on the United States at Pearl Harbor. The American position in the Philippines allowed the United States to prevent Japan from spreading south. And this was what provoked the Japanese to attack the United States. Okay, that's the first president and the first war. And the lesson there is you can lead Americans to war, but it's hard to keep them at war when things go badly.
Why is this? Because support for war is fundamentally a matter of domestic politics. America's wars are only partly about how do the soldiers perform in those foreign theaters. Mostly they're about how long will the American people support this particular war, whatever that war happens to be. Okay, second president, second war. Woodrow Wilson, as I said, was elected in 1912. At the time, he had no idea that Western civilization was about to undergo its most horrendous conflict in history. In fact, everything appeared calm on the world stage in 1912, which is one of the reasons that Americans didn't ask what Woodrow Wilson knew about foreign policy, didn't ask what William Howard Taft, the Republican incumbent, knew about foreign policy, hardly asked what Theodore Roosevelt, who was the third party challenger, knew about foreign policy. It was all about the economy, which it almost always is about. And for the first year of his presidency, Woodrow Wilson paid almost no attention to foreign policy. He was concerned with the domestic economy. He was concerned with tax reform. And he really gave hardly a thought to foreign affairs. Sort of like when President George W. Bush was elected and became president in January of 2000. I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but from January of 2001, when he was inaugurated, until September 2001, the Bush presidency was almost nothing about foreign affairs. Domestic politics was the principal concern of the new Bush administration. The Wilson administration expected that domestic affairs would continue to be the predominant theme, but then Europe went off and declared war on itself. The Germans and the Austrians and the Turks came in on one side and the British and the French and the Russians came in on the other side. And Woodrow Wilson declared American neutrality. The United States takes no side in this war, he said. Wilson went beyond that. He urged Americans not even to root for one side or the other. We should be, he said, neutral in thought as well as in deed. And it looked for a while as though the United States might be able to stay out of Europe's war. Most Americans in 1914, this is, we're now at the summer of 1914, most Americans in the summer of 1914 could trace an immediate ancestor, a parent, grandparent, maybe great-grandparent, to one of the countries that were at war in Europe. The United States was then, as it is now and as it always has been, a nation of immigrants. But the percentage of immigrants in the United States in the early part of the 20th century was higher than it had ever been before or has been since. And this is one of the reasons that Wilson cautioned Americans, don't root for one side of the other. Naturally, people who had come from Germany might be rooting for the Germans. And people who had come from regions of the Austrian Empire might be rooting for the Austrians. People who had come from Russia might well be rooting, well, they'd probably be rooting against Russia, because the reason they left Russia is they didn't like it in Russia. But anyway, people did have an emotional stake in the outcome. And Wilson said, please, don't let your emotions get engaged. 
Because Wilson realized if the emotions did get engaged, then it wouldn't be long before American armed forces got engaged. Why? Because Wilson did understand that American domestic politics has a very large impact on American foreign policy. This is a democracy. If people want war, they're going to get war. Now, Wilson knew that most Americans at first didn't want war, but interests might arise that would pull the United States into war. I asked a moment ago, why the war in Iraq? What was the altruistic part? Democracy for the Iraqi people. What was the self-interested part? Oil. Oil wasn't a big deal for the United States in 1914, because in 1914, the United States was a major producer of oil, far more than it was a consumer of oil. But in 1914, there was an equivalent economic stake, and that was American investment. The United States, you may or may not know today, the United States is a major importer of foreign capital. Lots of money is coming from foreign countries into the United States, but in 1914, the United States was a major exporter of capital. And the United States, that is, American banks, loaned money to the various belligerents in the war. Now, what this meant was something similar to what it would mean if the United States lost control of oil from the Middle East. If the countries that the United States loaned money to lost the war, the United States wouldn't get, those lenders wouldn't get their money back. So there was a very large economic interest in ensuring that the countries to whom the United States loaned money did not lose the war. The loans went overwhelmingly to Britain and to France, who were on the same side in the war, which gave the United States an incentive to make sure that Britain and France didn't lose the war. Woodrow Wilson, however, was very reluctant to lead the United States into war. He was old enough to have lived through the Spanish-American War. He saw how the enthusiasm for war against Spain had dissolved when the war turned out to be more complicated as the casualties rose and the difficulties of suppressing the insurgency in the Philippines had led Americans to turn against the war. So Wilson decided that if the United States was going to go to war, it was going to go to war very slowly. And Wilson was going to try to educate American public opinion, American political opinion, to the necessity of American intervention. He took his time. The war started in the summer of 1914, as late as the autumn of 1916. Two and a quarter years later, Wilson was still saying he was not going to send American boys to fight a war. In fact, his campaign slogan, his re-election campaign slogan in 1916 was, he kept us out of war. So Americans went to the polls in 1916 and voted for Wilson in large part on grounds that he had kept the United States out of war. I said earlier that there have just been a small handful of elections where foreign policy played a major role. This was one in 1916. And what did Wilson do? Well, it wasn't entirely his doing. It was the doing of the German high command. Even before Wilson could be re-inaugurated, he won by a hair's breadth in 1916, but even before he could be re-inaugurated the following March, the German government 
decided, in effect, to declare war on the United States. Because the United States had become a de facto ally of Britain and France. And it was at this point that Wilson went to Congress and asked for a declaration of war. This part is important because when McKinley asked for a declaration of war in 1898, when Wilson asked for a declaration of war in 1917, when, I'm going to get my third president in a moment, when Franklin Roosevelt asked for a declaration of war in December 1941, in each case the president followed the rules specified by the Constitution. Do you know which branch of government gets to declare war? Congress. Congress declares war. That's what the Constitution says. Do you know the last time Congress declared war? 1941, after Pearl Harbor. Congress has not declared war since then. Does that mean the United States has not been at war since World War II? The United States has been at war in Korea, in Vietnam, in the Persian Gulf, in Iraq. But Congress didn't declare war in any one of those cases. We can talk a little bit more about why that's so. But the point here is that Wilson allowed American public opinion to prepare itself for war. He took two and a half years to get the United States into the war. Congress, by the way, did give him his declaration of war. It was a split vote. It wasn't by any means a slam dunk. It was strongly in favor of war, but by no means unanimously. So there were enough people in the United States who wanted, is this really such a good idea? Is this our war? But a majority of Americans thought it was. American troops went off to fight. The fighting for the United States lasted about a year and a half. From the spring of 1917 till the autumn of 1918. The war ended in November 1918. And it was followed shortly by a peace conference. And to Woodrow Wilson's way of thinking, the peace conference was going to be the ultimate justification for the war. Over 100,000 Americans were killed in the First World War, and Wilson had to figure out how to make that sacrifice worthwhile. So we went off to the Paris Peace Conference in early 1919, determined to establish a League of Nations. The League of Nations was going to be the beginnings of an international government. It was a forerunner to today's United Nations. It would provide a venue for the settling of international disputes. It would also provide an enforcement arm when disputes did break out. When one nation injured, aggressed upon another nation. The model was domestic government. If you commit a crime against your neighbor, if you, heaven, for, heaven forbid, should break into your apartment and steal your television, what do you do? Do you grab a gun and go after him? Well, you're not supposed to. No, you're supposed to call up the police and say there's been a robbery and I've lost my stereo. And I think I saw this guy steal it. And he was wearing a white long sleeve t-shirt and he looked kind of suspicious and he was carting this TV out under his arm and I think he goes to Grand Valley State and so the police come in and they check fingerprints and they ID him 
They go arrest him and he gets put in the slammer. And do you know what the, how many of you watch Law and Order? Everybody watches Law and Order, right? Do you know how they begin the proceedings? What's your name? Danielle. Danielle. Does Jack McCoy, or when they, they announce the trial, would they say Danielle against what's your name? Casey. Danielle versus Casey. Is that the way they announce trials in on Law and Order and Criminal Court? How do they announce them? The state of New York against Casey. And this is very important because you have been injured. Your TV has been stolen, but you personally don't get to go after Casey. The state of Michigan goes after Casey. That's critical because you have surrendered a certain amount of, you could call your personal sovereignty, to the state. And you agree, no, I'm not picking up a gun and going after him. I'm going to call the police and they're going to go after him. And the state of Michigan is the one who prosecutes him because he violated the peace and order of the state of Michigan. You happen to be the party to that, but he's the one who violated And it's the people or the state of New York against Casey. And he goes to the slammer because he violated the peace of the state of Michigan. This was the model for the League of Nations. If Mexico attacked Nicaragua, Nicaragua wouldn't take it upon itself to attack Mexico back. Nicaragua would appeal to the League of Nations and say, we've been injured. And the League of Nations would say, okay, yeah, Mexico, you're in the wrong and we're going to punish you. Now, you're a law-abiding fellow. You're not going to steal Daniel's TV, are you? No, of course not. And mostly because you're a good guy. Of course. But also because you fear the wrath of the state of Michigan. Mexico's not going to attack Nicaragua because Mexico is peace-loving, maybe. But also, why not? At least if the League of Nations model works. Because they know the League of Nations is going to come after them. Mexico doesn't have to fear Nicaragua, but it does have to fear the League of Nations because the League of Nations includes all the major powers on Earth, including the United Nations. That's the idea. That was Wilson's dream. Because you must remember that in 1918, as they tallied up the dead from the First World War, and they numbered in the millions, Nearly everybody believed that human civilization could not survive another such war. So we got to do anything we can to make sure that no other war occurs. How are we going to do it? We got to change the model. The old model of letting nations slug it out among themselves, this isn't working. This is killing lots of people and it's going to destroy civilization. Wilson proposes this new idea, the League of Nations. The trouble is, the trouble is that Americans were rather put off by the formation of the League of Nations by some of the rules, including the fact that it specified that if Mexico did attack Nicaragua, American troops might have to go punish Mexico. And a lot of Americans at the end of the First World War are beginning to think this war wasn't such a good idea in the first place. And then they began to ask themselves, well, why should American soldiers go fight in Mexico for something Mexico did to Nicaragua. They could say, they wouldn't have put it in exactly these terms, but they might have. They could say, well, I can see the altruism in that. Yeah, that's good. But where's the self-interest? Because it's got to be good for them and good for us. 
And they just said, I don't see enough good for us. So when Wilson bought, brought the peace treaty from World War I home and handed it to the Senate, you know, when the United States signs a treaty and the treaty is going to become law, it involves a two-step process. The first step is for the president to sign the treaty. What's the second step? What other branch of government gets involved? Congress. And what, brand, what House of Congress in particular? Who ratifies treaties? The U.S. Senate. The Senate ratifies treaties and, in fact, the treaties have to be ratified not by a simple majority, not just by 51 senators, but by a two-thirds majority, by 67 senators. And that's a big hurdle to get over. Why such a big hurdle? Ah, this is where history comes back and bites us. Because in 1787, when the current Constitution, the only Constitution we've lived under, when the current Constitution was written, the people who wrote the Constitution did not think that foreign affairs would play a large role in American politics or American life because the United States was far away from Europe and there weren't any important powers nearby. So they wanted to make sure that the United States did not lightly enter into treaties with other countries. What this meant was that if you're going to get a treaty, it's got to get a whole lot of support. Wilson got more than a majority of support for the treaty at the end of World War I. It was called the Treaty of Versailles. Versailles is a suburb of Paris where the treaty was signed. But he didn't get the supermajority. He didn't get his two-thirds. As a result, the United States did not join the League of Nations. And as a result, this business of the United States joining other countries to go after Mexico if Mexico attacks Nicaragua did not come about. And as a result, Casey was allowed to run amok and steal Danielle's TV whenever he wanted. Because he didn't have to worry about the rest of us coming after him. Okay, that's the second president and the second war. And the lesson there is Woodrow Wilson took more time to educate the American people to what was at stake in the war, but it turned out not quite enough. Because the support for the war lasted through the war, but it didn't last through the peace. He didn't really change American thinking. If he had changed American thinking, then the U.S. would have joined the League of Nations and Woodrow Wilson would have gotten the beginnings of this world government. Okay, third president, third war. The third president is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And the third war is World War II. By the way, do you know when World War I was first called World War I? When World War II began. In fact, I'm writing this book on Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm trying to figure out how to label World War I. But when I'm writing about the 1920s and 1930s, I can't call it World War I yet because that presupposes a World War II. What it was generally called was either the World War or the Great War. But later it would be called World War I once there's a World War II. Franklin Roosevelt watched very closely the experiences of Theodore Roosevelt and of Woodrow Wilson. He watched the experience of Franklin, excuse me, Franklin Roosevelt watched the experience of Theodore Roosevelt because Theodore Roosevelt was his cousin, his fifth cousin. And Franklin Roosevelt was often invited to the White House. 
Theodore Roosevelt became Franklin's Roosevelt, not only his fifth cousin, but he was his uncle-in-law because Franklin Roosevelt married Eleanor Roosevelt, who then became Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt, and she was Theodore Roosevelt's niece. Now, the Roosevelts, they didn't have much compunction about marrying cousins. Uh, admittedly, fifth cousin, so no big deal. Uh, but nonetheless, as Theodore Roosevelt said to Franklin Roosevelt on his wedding day, well, Franklin, there's nothing like keeping the name in the family. Franklin Roosevelt had been watching Theodore Roosevelt and thinking, you know, I could be president someday. I'm as smart as Uncle Ted. I'm as popular as Uncle Ted. If he could be president, so can I. So he was watching Uncle Ted and watching how the enthusiasm for the war against Spain fizzled out and how the American people turned against the whole notion of expansion that the war against Spain was premised on. Franklin Roosevelt watched Woodrow Wilson very closely because he was a member of Woodrow Wilson's executive branch. Franklin Roosevelt became Assistant Secretary of the Navy. The same position that Theodore Roosevelt had held. In fact, Franklin Roosevelt modeled his own political career on Uncle Ted's political career. And not just his political career. Theodore Roosevelt had had six children. And when Franklin Roosevelt married Eleanor Roosevelt, he told Eleanor, and we're going to have six kids too. And Eleanor said, what do you mean, we? Who do you think is going to have these kids? But they did have six children. And Theodore Roosevelt followed, excuse me, Franklin Roosevelt, followed Theodore Roosevelt's model. He served in the Wilson administration as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he watched very closely how Woodrow Wilson summoned, cultivated, popular political support for the war, and he watched how that support persisted throughout the war, despite the rising toll of casualties. But then he watched that support finally fizzle away during the peace conference after the war. He saw Woodrow Wilson's final defeat on the Treaty of Versailles so that he could see that as of 1920, by two years after the war, Americans mostly thought we never should have gotten into that war. And Franklin Roosevelt watched that and he thought about that and he thought, if I ever become president, I'm going to do a better job than Uncle Ted. I'm going to do a better job than President Wilson. Now, it just so happened that Franklin Roosevelt found himself president of the United States in the 1930s. He was elected in 1932. For the first five years of his presidency, through his whole first term and into his second term, he was mostly a domestic president. But in his second term, as the world began to descend into the Second World War, he realized that the United States was going to have to take some action that it simply could not stand aside and see Hitler conquer Europe. The United States could not stand aside and see the Japanese government overrun East Asia. But he also knew that he was going to have a very difficult time persuading the American people to agree to intervention in Europe or intervention in Asia because he saw how American support for Uncle Ted's war against Spain had fizzled. He saw how American support for Woodrow Wilson's war 
had faded. And he knew that if the United States went to war again, it would have to be more than about just defeating Hitler, defeating the Japanese. The only way to justify such a war would be to change American thinking. To change American thinking from this mindset that what happens in other countries really doesn't matter to us. And we can get along just fine letting the world go to hell in its own handbasket. Franklin Roosevelt came to that conclusion early, but he knew perfectly well that he was going to have a hard time convincing Americans. And so he went at it very slowly, very carefully. He understood that wars only work for the United States when they have the support of the American people. And he was determined that before the United States got involved in war again, it must have the support of the American people. In 1937, he uttered his first words suggesting that the United States might have to take some action against foreign aggressors. He used the word quarantine. That's a public health word. That's not a military or national security word, but he did say that aggression, foreign aggression is kind of like the outbreak of disease. And what do you do when there's an outbreak of disease? Well, what you try to do is quarantine the people who've been exposed to the disease so the disease can't spread. And it's a fairly innocuous thing. But in fact, the response to this call for a quarantine was sufficiently opposed that Roosevelt backed away. And he didn't even raise the subject for another year. He was very careful, very cautious about this. Well, in the autumn, late summer autumn of 1939, Europe went to war again. Okay, Roosevelt realizes, decides that the United States is going to have to get involved. But how to get involved, that was the issue. He didn't ask for neutrality, but he did say we're not going to war. Oh, there was another thing involved here. Roosevelt had decided he was going to run for a third term. No president had ever been elected to three terms. There was nothing in the Constitution at this point against it, but nobody had ever done it. There, George Washington had set the two-term rule, and Roosevelt was going to try to break that rule. Why? Well, like other politicians, he was ambitious and he wanted to serve longer. But also because he believed that, and this is the commonest thing among people who think they ought to be President of the United States, he was convinced that he was the best person to lead the United States during this time of crisis. And so he knew perfectly well that if he said to Americans, hey, re-elect me and I'm taking you to war. There's no way to run for president. No, no. You say, re-elect me and I'm going to keep you out of war. And in fact, just days before the election, Franklin Roosevelt said, I will not send American boys to fight in any foreign wars. Okay, this seemed to put him in a bind. He can't send American troops to Europe. Well, there was, not as though he had his fingers crossed behind his back, but there was an unstated exception to this. And that was, what if the United States gets attacked? Then it's not a foreign war, right? Then it's our war. Okay, Roosevelt decided that Hitler needed to be opposed that the Japanese needed to be opposed. He found one method after another to increase American support for Britain, which at this point was the main country fighting Germany. He sent American destroyers to Britain. 
he persuaded Congress to pass what's called the Lend-Lease Bill. This just opened the floodgates of American money and American weapons to the countries fighting against Hitler and fighting against the Japanese. And then he organized what amounted to a covert and undeclared naval war against Germany on the Atlantic. And he waged, he declared, economic war against Japan. But he refused to fire the first shot. He insisted that the United States be attacked. Because he knew perfectly well that if the United States fired the first shot, then his opponents, maybe not immediately, but after a while would say, Roosevelt led us into war. For Roosevelt, he understood that the only way that support for this war would be sustained. And the only way he could get this change in American thinking about the war was for this war not to be Roosevelt's war. Not to be Roosevelt's war the way the war against Spain was Theodore Roosevelt's war, or the First World War was Woodrow Wilson's war, but this war to be America's war. So Roosevelt kept cranking the pressure up against the Japanese until the Japanese decided they couldn't take it any longer and they decided to strike at the United States. The Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 immediately convinced all Americans that the United States needed to go to war. The reaction was very much like the reaction, again, most of you perhaps don't remember it personally, but the reaction in the United States after September 11, 2001. The United States had been attacked and immediately there was this rallying around the president. There was a rallying around Franklin Roosevelt. There was also outrage against Japan. Japan has attacked us. We must attack Japan. German, excuse me, Japan's ally, Germany, shortly declared war on the United States. Okay, they declared war on us. Now it's a war against by these it's a war of these foreign aggressors against the United States. It's not against Franklin Roosevelt, against the United States. Roosevelt almost pushed things too far. He almost waited too long. The attack on Pearl Harbor gave him the war he wanted, but it also destroyed most of American specific, America's Pacific fleet. It set back American defense planning the Pacific by about a year and a half. It perhaps lengthened the war in the Pacific, but it succeeded in getting popular support for the war. It brought the American people around behind Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, the American people came, got to get ahead of Franklin Roosevelt. He held a meeting with the congressional leadership on the night of the Pearl Harbor attack. And it was members of Congress. They asked him, Mr. President, are you going to ask for a declaration of war? And he said he hadn't decided yet. Now that was simply a ruse. He knew perfectly well he's going to ask for a declaration of war. But when he said, I haven't decided yet, the leaders of Congress said, well, damn it, Mr. President, we're going to declare war whether you ask for a declaration or not. This was exactly what he wanted to hear. Because this war had become a war declared by Congress on the initiative of Congress on behalf of the American people. And even though World War II in the next three and a half years was by far the most costly foreign war the United States ever fought. Three times the casualties of World War I. American support for the war never flagged. In fact, American support for the war simply grew as the war became more costly. And more to the permanent point, Americans became convinced that Woodrow Wilson had been right that Franklin Roosevelt was right, 
that the United States needed to take responsibility for world peace and world order. And Roosevelt got the bigger thing that he wanted, not simply American support for the war, but a change of the American mind. And in fact, this change of American mind was so profound that once changed, it has never changed back. Not since, the, not since Franklin Roosevelt died in April 1945, so that's 63 years ago. At the time of Roosevelt's death, the United States had taken a leadership position in creating the United Nations. This was an update of the League of Nations that Woodrow Wilson had proposed and the Americans had rejected in 1919. But now Americans signed on to the United Nations and signed on to the idea that the United States needed to keep order around the world. And it was under this new mindset that the United States sent troops to Korea in 1950, that the United States sent troops to Vietnam in the 1960s, that the United States sent troops to the Persian Gulf once in 1990 for the 1991 war, and that the United States sent troops to Iraq in 2003. Well, I've used up more than my time, so I'm not going to get to the fourth president of the fourth war, but you might guess who that president would be, George W. Bush. And the fourth war would be the war in Iraq. And I could ask, well, I'll just ask you to think about the extent to which the lessons of Theodore Roosevelt in the war against Spain, of Woodrow Wilson in the First World War, and Franklin Roosevelt in World War II apply to the current situation in Iraq. I'll stop there and see if you have any questions. Questions? Questions? Oh, yes. Who blew up the main? It's a question that historians still debate. It was a mysterious explosion at the time. The war hawks, including Theodore Roosevelt, immediately pointed the finger at Spanish agents. They must have done the dastardly deed. There was no evidence in favor of that. A Navy board was immediately gathered, and the Navy board said that it was probably an external explosion, which, from which the conclusion was drawn that somebody had planted a bomb next to the ship. Subsequent investigation suggested that that initial conclusion was wrong. In fact, that it was an internal explosion. And the best historical evidence is that the ship blew up more or less spontaneously. The main was a ship that was fueled by coal. Coal is kept in basically big fuel tanks, they're called bunkers, in the belly of the ship. And when the bunker is full of coal, it's fairly safe. But when the bunker gets nearly empty, there's all this coal dust in the air. And the least spark can set off the coal dust, can ignite that, which then will ignite the ammunition that's kept nearby. And so the ship blew up. But the reaction to the main sinking and the, the fact that Roosevelt and the Warhawks pointed to this as an example of what Spain would do caused some people a century later to liken that to an early version of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. If Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, the United States needs to take action to get them out of his hands to overthrow him. It turned out that there were no weapons of mass destruction. It turned out that the Spanish didn't blow up the main. But in each case, that provided a pretext for the war. And once the troops are on the ground, then the war has a life of its own. Other questions? Yes, sir. 
Okay, the first part of it was if the United States had not been in the Philippines? Yes. Okay, yes. The reason the Japanese had to attack the United States at Pearl Harbor was that they knew the United States held this position in the Philippines, which was right next to the route from Indochina down to the Dutch East Indies. Roosevelt had already given the Japanese an ultimatum, don't go any farther than Indochina. The Japanese decided they had to go farther to get the oil from the Dutch East Indies. They knew that Roosevelt would oppose that and that the Americans were located right along the route. So as long as the United States held that position, the Japanese could not make a run down to the Indies, the East Indies, which is now Indonesia. If the United States had not been in the Philippines, take that out of the picture. Then the Japanese knew, that would have known, that they could have captured the Dutch East Indies, and the United States would have been in no position to oppose that. The closest American ships would have been in Hawaii, which was a long way away. And the American people quite possibly, quite likely, would have said, what's the Dutch East Indies to us? But the Japanese believed that the United States was in a position to thwart this expansion. And that's why the Japanese had to hit the American fleet. And by the way, it was on the same day that the Japanese attacked the American position in the Philippines. So, without the United States in the Philippines, Japanese thinking would have been quite different. And I just would add one thing. For the 40 years before the outbreak of World War II, for the 40 years from American annexation to the Philippines, of the Philippines, to Pearl Harbor, the Japanese always had to factor this American position and the powerful American naval base at Subic Bay in the Philippines into their thinking. And it galled them that the U.S. held this position in such a strategically sensitive spot to the Japanese. Because the Japanese, now this is something that you all ought to bear in mind. The Japanese thought they were perfectly justified in doing what they did. And I would argue that as horrible a monster as Hitler was, Hitler and most of the Germans thought they were justified in doing what they did. Now, this doesn't mean they were justified, but it's important to remember that everybody thinks they're justified in doing what they were doing. The Japanese explained their expansion to themselves and to the world in terms of, look at the United States. The United States has its empire, including the Philippines, but mostly including all the Western Hemisphere. Heck, the United States has half the globe to itself. All we're looking for is a slice of East Asia. Fair's fair, isn't it? And they thought that the United States ought to accept that. I'm sure they were sincerely convinced that they had a right to dominate the Philippines and the East Indies the way the United States dominated the Cuba and Puerto Rico and Mexico and most of South America. And so they felt that they had every right to do it. And the United States was simply being difficult and was being overly aggressive in preventing it. Other questions? Yes, please. Yes, Professor Brands, I'm sure you deal with this in your book. The whole question of periodical resources is what does Roosevelt know prior to Pearl Harbor? Yes, yes, and this is a perennial question, and there's an entire conspiracy industry devoted to trying to prove 
that Franklin Roosevelt knew that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. Franklin Roosevelt did not know the, United, the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. Franklin Roosevelt knew or strongly expected that the Japanese were going to attack someplace. He pushed the Japanese into a corner. He wanted the Japanese to attack someplace. He just didn't think they were going to attack the United States, and he definitely did not think they were going to attack Hawaii. Why did he think the Japanese were going to attack? Well, in the first place, they had been threatening to do this for months. In the second place, Roosevelt had been reading the Japanese correspondence. American crypt cryptologists had broken the Japanese code, and they and Roosevelt could read what the Japanese were saying to each other. And they knew that the Japanese were preparing for an attack somewhere. But even if you think your code is secure, you don't say where you're going to attack. You say, okay, there's going to be an attack. So Roosevelt knew that D-Day for planning for the Japanese attack was November 25th, 1941. And he could guess, okay, November 25th, that probably means a task force is heading from Japan somewhere. Smart Money said an attack against Thailand, which was independent, Malaya, which was a British colony, maybe the Philippines, which was an American colony. Nobody guessed Hawaii. Now, the best evidence, so I can give you negative evidence that Roosevelt didn't know that there was going to be an attack on Hawaii because there's nothing that says Hawaii in all of this. But the best, call it positive evidence, that Roosevelt didn't know there was going to be an attack on Hawaii was the fact that he gave no order to the fleet in Hawaii to get those battleships out of the harbor. If Roosevelt simply wanted the United States to be attacked, he should have sent all the battleships out to sea so that when the Japanese torpedo planes and when the Japanese dive bombers arrived, they would find a few ships in the harbor, but not the heart of America's fleet. But the fleet was sitting there, anchored on that Sunday morning, and no one had any idea the attack was coming. Not Roosevelt, not anybody else. If Roosevelt had known, he would have... Hey, Roosevelt was the one who christened several of the ships on Battleship Row that day, when he had, back when he had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy of the Navy. The American Navy was Roosevelt's pride and joy. When he heard about the battleships that had been sunk, it made his heart sink. If he had known, and he simply wanted a pretext for war, he would have sent the battleships to sea and left a cruiser or a destroyer in there, and one single ship that went down. If he were that cynical to leave the United States open to attack, that would have been enough. Or, you know, he certainly would have alerted the defenders at Hawaii. Hey, an attack is coming. Now blast those Japanese planes out of the sky. That would have been pretext enough. They shot at us. He wouldn't have let 3,000 sailors die. He wouldn't have lost six out of eight battleships. He wouldn't have set back the American war effort for two years in the Pacific. So, the best evidence that Roosevelt didn't know was all the things that he, all the actions that he could have taken if he had known, but didn't take. Any other questions? Okay. Very nice to talk to you. Good luck with everyone.